listening to Carnivore Conversations, a podcast exploring the benefits of keto, carnivore, intermittent feasting, and other lifestyle hacks. Each week, we'll be interviewing a special guest from the keto carnivore community and so much more. This is your host, board-certified and practicing physician, Dr. Robert Kiltz. Well, it's really a pleasure to have you, Tara, and uh, Natalie here today. Thank you for uh, coming on with us and talking a little bit about what you're doing in the world of providing healthy food for all of us. Yeah, thanks yeah. for having us on. We're excited. Yeah, yeah thank maybe you. you could, maybe you can tell us a little bit about your, each of yourselves or what you're doing and how you're sharing your information to make uh, all of us have healthy lives. Sure, I can go first. So um, as you mentioned, I'm Tara Vanderdusen, and I am a dairy farmer in eastern New Mexico. Um, I actually got my degree in environmental science. And so my role um, on our dairy and my client's dairy is to assist them with environmental permitting, regulation, water rights, all of that kind of thing. Um, I always joke it's like the back end of the dairy, you know, the lagoon and the back end of the cow, basically. <laughs> um, and so I started sharing, though, online about seven years ago, just wanting I was seeing a ton of misinformation and I kind of just wanted to share what I was seeing every day on my dairy, on my clients' dairies. And, um, you know, along the way I met Natalie online and, um, we became fast friends and ultimately launched our business together and started our podcast discover ag together. And Natalie, have a little bit yourself first. So like, <clears throat> excuse me. So like Tara, I grew up in agriculture. I'm currently in central Nebraska, but I was raised in Southwest Montana, very beautiful part of the state on a cattle ranch. So I've always been familiar with ranching. It's what me and my husband do now. I did kind of, I don't like to say leave the industry, but I didn't get my degree in anything ag related. I ended up getting my degree actually in pharmacy. And when I graduated, uh, that's what I was doing. I was practicing full-time pharmacy living in a bigger city in Montana, which is obviously a very relative term. It's still probably a smaller city compared to a lot of places. But I really thought that's kind of what my path would be. You know, I was still connected to my family ranch, but I wasn't living on it. My income wasn't derived from it. Um, and I definitely wasn't sharing about it online. I met my husband and that's how I ended up down here in Nebraska. And like Tara, somewhere along the way, I just kind of decided to start sharing online a little bit about agriculture you know, I really wanted to connect people to our way of life, you know, ranching, Western industry, kind of just give people that lens. And like Tara said, it led me to her and we created, um, you know, we became really good friends. And then through that friendship, we also formed our business. And um, now we podcast every single Thursday um, about agriculture on Discover Ag. Is, is that your business together is podcasting and sharing information about uh, our, our food? Yep. Yeah, we... Um, we have the podcast together and then we're working on a kind of behind the scenes project for hopefully like a docu-series that would pair with the podcast really well, where we could actually, you know, give the visual component where we visit the operations and the farms and the families and, and storytell and connect people back through the food that way. Um, but for right now, we do the podcasting. And so we're all disconnected to our food in one way or another. I was uh, talking to Natalie before you came on, Tara, about the fact I lived in Los Angeles, uh, um, it, in the city, you know, city, we'd get our food from a small um, uh, food house, it was called, and uh, it, we'd walk to get food. We're at Safeway, wasn't too far away, but uh, in a liquor store to get our food. Um, so it was kind of uh, very disconnected. I grew up 
you know, Mediterranean, but pretty much everything in LA. Uh, but we really didn't know much about the nutritional value, one of our food, what was good and what was bad and where it came from, because it takes human beings to do the work that we used to all do for our food. But what percentage of people actually do the work to provide the food for the world? And tell us a little bit about why you guys got into getting back to providing the, the, the essence of all of us. Yeah. So you mentioned, I mean, it's a very small percentage of the population at this point that's employed by agriculture is involved directly with agriculture. And I feel like over the last few years, and I think COVID kind of accelerated that people have been more curious about where their food's coming from. They're asking more questions. They want to know and be more connected with the people that are producing their food. And I feel like Natalie and I both felt that shift online and kind of wanted to be a part of that, like give people the information they were looking for, be there to answer questions, have these conversations and not just have surface level conversations, like actually dive into what it takes to produce the food that ends up on everyone's plates. You know, and I think that's actually like the positive side of it, right? That like there's this uh, connection, this drive, this um, emotional tie that people want to get back to their food. And that's why we share. But I also think there's this totally opposite side of the coin, this negative side where I feel like there's a ton of misinformation. There's a ton of fear based factor marketing out there. There's confusion like there's it's not a great time to be a consumer. Honestly, I don't feel like it's a great time for a consumer to go to the grocery store and feel really confident about what they're buying and know who came you know, who raised it, where it came from and how it was produced, what the labels mean, what went into it. And so I feel like that's another reason why Tara and I share too, and why we're so passionate about our podcast is because I feel like there's a lot of negativity around food. And I think social media, honestly, is a driver of it too. There's people sharing about food, like it's factual when I don't feel like they really have any connection or understanding of any of, you know, what truly went into growing that food. So how can people learn more about what they're eating, what should they be eating, and what's good or bad of what they're eating? Because really, first question is, is the food that we're eating really bad for us in the sense of where it comes from? Or, or you know, is, is, the, is the meat bad, the eggs bad, the chicken bad, uh, the beef bad? Or is it really mostly good, but we're just all confused by a million stories? Yeah, I would say the latter of those, you know, that I think that overall, you know, if you're eating a whole food like beef or dairy or whatever that food choices, eggs you mentioned, it we know those are like nutrient powerhouses. Those animal proteins are so good for you. They are packed with the nutrients we need. And I just think that there is, again, like Natalie said, so much misinformation out there that people become so fearful. And then we slap labels on everything because we want to market to these people, you know, and then we want people to buy whatever product over another product. And it ends up just in mass confusion and a ton of fear-based marketing. I also think we as a society are starting to confuse and blur the lines a little bit between healthy and safe. And those are two very, very distinct things. We, I always say, you'll hear Tara and I say it all the time, that we have a very safe, affordable, and abundant food system. Now, there are pros and cons to that, but that's where we truly are as a society. As Americans, we have a very safe, affordable, and abundant food system. Is it the healthiest food system now? No, like we have a lot of options to go out there that are probably not the best thing to put in our body from a diet standpoint, but that does not mean that it's not safe to put in our bodies, you know, and that didn't come at, it came at an affordable price and you were able to easily go access it as well. It is when you, it's so safety of food, 
is our food today less contaminated than it was 100 years ago or 200 years ago? Are we less likely to get dysentery or other bugs from the food we eat because of refrigeration and maybe pasteurization for the masses as we're selling it? Uh, do you think that's true? Yeah, I think so. You know, I've been seeing a ton online lately about pasteurization, actually, and a lot of misinformation about like why pasteurization started. And, you know, food had to travel further. Like we, there was less people. If you had a cow in your backyard and you were drinking that milk that day, you didn't need to pasteurize that milk because it was gone within, you know, 24 hours you were consuming that product. But when you started having people move into a city and you had to go out to the farm, get the milk, bring it into the city, it changed ha hands. How many times people were touching the bottles, like all of those things then that's why, you know, we created pasteurization is to make this product safer, make it more shelf stable, be able to get it to people uh, in a safe manner. And so I do think that there is some confusion there even about like why we do the things we do to our food like pasteurization. Organic versus inorganic. Are those true statements that we need to worry about? Uh, is it marketing or how should we all look at it when we're going and buying our food? This is always a tough one to dive into because I feel like, um, well, even food in general, um, I feel like it is the like agriculture, ranching, farming food is kind of the one industry that emotion and science are really on level playing fields. And so when you get into conversations like GMO and organic, I feel like people really come into them from an emotional standpoint more than they are ready to hear about them from a factual scientific standpoint. Like food is just very personal. It's very emotional. Um, there is differences between organic and non-organic. Like it, it, um, part of me wants to say it's a marketing ploy because I do think brands use it, um, kind of in a sneaky way with consumers. Um, but there is differences. Organic is regulated by, is it the USDA? Tar or USDA. Or USDA. USDA. So it is a regulated term within agriculture and it actually really comes down to farming practices. So it is not a difference in nutrition. Um, but it's really how, you know, the farmers have different stipulations that are upheld to them about how they can grow that food. Um, so I don't know how deep you want to go into organic versus non-organic. Well, I, I kind of always look at it as, I mean, food is organic. I mean, that's just the nature of food that we eat. But I guess uh, whether you're using pesticides, I imagine, and all sorts of things, but there are probably some rules and laws that allow some and, and things like that. So it's such a confusing thing. I, I was, is it really the thing that changes the value of the food, do you think? Or, or, or really, uh, for most people, you know, we're feeding millions of people, billions of people in the world, in essence. You know, what should people look for when they're buying food? Or, or you know, I mean, I have my opinion of what people should eat. Where do you fall in on that side of what are the healthiest things, you know, food groups? Do you, do you guys talk about that in your blogging, food groups? Well, obviously, we're big advocates of the animal protein part of the food group, specifically um, meat and dairy, obviously. Um, as far as, you know, the organic conversation, I know I personally do not buy organic. Um, I pretty much just buy what's available at my grocery store, what is affordable, you know, those kind of things. And, but one of the things Natalie and I are big advocates for is food choice. But I think the key about food choice is making an informed decision. I think the word organic people think it means something that it doesn't, or they confuse it or aren't sure. And 
I just love when consumers actually make a decision because of facts. And I think that is really the key when you're making decisions in the grocery store. Don't just assume that something means something and that's why you're buying it. I guess to keep, you know, kind of feeding off that conversation, Tara said that people see the organic label and I do think they instantly think healthier and that's not true. So if you, again, going back to like bringing, you know, science and um, facts into the conversation, you know, there is no nutritional difference between an organic apple and a non-organic apple. They are still going to provide to you the same things an apple would. Um, I think we actually talked about this on our podcast a couple weeks ago. We talked about the dirty dozen because I feel like that's one of the things that's like highly associated with organic is shopping the dirty dozen or not to. Um, and I really the think it comes dozen. down. What's that? The dirty dozen. What's the dirty dozen for those that may not know? Oh, sure. It is a list of 12 uh, fruits and vegetables that are, I guess they're ranked by the, is it EWG? Is that right? Yeah, it's the Environmental yeah. Working Group. And they're basically the ones that they recommend people do. If you're going to shop these, they say you need to shop them organic because they have the highest levels of contaminants. But we didn't really dive into it, which is what we do on our podcast. Um, they're not really bringing risk assessment into the factor. They're just basically saying like there are pesticide residue on this and then that means bad. Um, but everything is regulated through the FDA. Everything on that list is actually well below the standard limits that are acceptable and deemed safe. And so it's basically taking out all risk assessment factor, which Tara can we dive into it much more on that conversation. But it's obviously like a very key, important thing to consider when you're shopping the Dirty Dozen or why you wouldn't or would. And so things like that are missing, you know, that nuance and that conversation out there about food. Like, again, yes, there's a difference between organic and non-organic. But when it comes down to it, like Tara, I don't actually shop organic intentionally because, well, a lot of reasons, but um, I, from a nutrition standpoint, there isn't going to be a difference. I don't, there's a lot of organic fraud. So I don't always feel like what I'm actually paying for is what I'm getting when it comes mm -hmm. to organic labels. Mm -hmm. um, and then also I don't fear our food system. I think, I think a lot of people buy organic out of fear, like that it's going to be safer for them. Um, and I don't, you know, I'm, as farmers and ranchers, we are very, very close to our food system. We see it every day. Our friends are in it. I know the people who use pesticides, herbicides, the things, you know, that people who don't see it with their own eyes and don't know the people growing it, you know, maybe they have questions and concerns about that. I see those people. Farmers are eating the food that they raise, you know, organic non-organic producers are eating the non-organic food because they see what's going into it. They don't have a fear around it and they understand the science behind it. Um, so well, we drive cars, we fly an airplane. We do so many dangerous things that we don't even think about walking across the, a crosswalk and cars are zipping by. And so we, we sort of maybe our, our risk assessment is completely skewed and we're not really looking at the things that, that really are getting to us. Uh, now let, me, let me get back to a little bit about a meat-based versus a plant-based diet. What's your thoughts and ideas on that? And and why? So I will probably speak for Natalie too. We incorporate a ton of animal protein into all of our meals. Um, beef is, well, I say animal protein, beef and dairy are the majority of um, our protein that we get in our household. And we eat it every single meal. Uh, we also obviously incorporate fruits and vegetables and, um, you know, I do grains, we do breads and things. Um, but I would say like, we plan our meal around what steak we're having <laughs> for that. That, I mean, that's the core of our food is that steak. And then it's like, okay, building our play out from there. 
Yeah, so I'm not carnivore. <laughs> Tara's actually talked about trying to go carnivore. Before. I wish I could, but I have not taken the plunge yet. But we, like Tara said, I have a freezer full, you know, we harvest our own beef. And so I, and I grew up that way. I mean, it seems very, actually very, very foreign to me to not, you know, walk out to my garage or my basement or wherever you have, you know, a X, I don't even know how many feet long it is, but you know, a freezer full of beef. And I know that's very privileged, um, I guess, raising or, you know, the way I live my life, but it, I can't imagine not being able to go to my freezer and pulling out whatever, you know, whether it's bacon or steaks or ground hamburger or roast or whatever it is and like tara said that's how i start my meal the first thing my my husband says what do you want for dinner and it's like are we going to pull out hamburger what are we going to pull out and then from that we you know create the rest of the meal and it's just because like tara said we i think truly understand how important protein is for our bodies and i would rather be getting that from an animal-based protein than i would from a plant-based protein i always find it difficult to find protein in a plant because i've always thought protein comes from (laughs) from muscle. There's no muscle in a plant and plants are made of sugar. And so ultimately no one can live on plant proteins. Uh, They can't. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the great things about animal proteins, right? Is it has all the essential amino acids that we need. Whereas ever, you know, the other stuff are supplementing or fortifying it. It's completely different than trying to get it from that raw product, which is going back to you know, we've said multiple times, but like that whole food, that's why the whole foods are so important because we aren't, you know, fortifying them or adding in or, you know, building them to what we need. It's like God created this for us that he put the animal out on pasture. He intended it to to do something that no other animal can do, which is upcycle that grass and give us a really high nutrient dense protein. And all we have to do is eat it. Like it's a beautiful system. Thank you. (laughs) So, so, uh, fact or fiction and a little bit, maybe the why part of it, uh, cattle are ruining the environment. Yeah, that's always the headline. I feel like that we're seeing these days. And the truth is very far from that. Here in the United States, animal agriculture accounts for less than 4% of total greenhouse gas emissions. And that includes, um, you know, poultry, hogs, all of that. That's not just cattle. Um, so it is a very small percentage. And I think, I don't, Natalie and I talk about this a lot. I feel like there's so many different directions we could go in this conversation, but like agriculture as a whole is making strides to be more reducing its carbon, more carbon neutral. Um, but at what point, like, is the food system that feeds us three times a day, like what amount of emissions is okay? Do you know what I mean? Like, so this is something we talk about a lot. That's like, how low do we have to get for us to feed all of us? In order to grow the plants for a plant-based diet, what is the carbon footprint of that? And, you know, that's the part that we're not talking about. And ultimately, you can't live without food. You can live without cars. Mm-hmm. We can live without trucks and trains and planes. Yeah, and no one wants to have that conversation, though. It's funny. It, they feel like it's easier to just say it's cleaner, right? It's simple. It's such a simple thing to just say, don't eat meat and everything will be okay, right? It's a very utopian view that just at its root actually is not factual. Like there's a lot of problems and some major ripple effects we would have as a society if we actually tried to remove animal agriculture from, you know, our society as a whole. Like there is a whole bunch of problems that would pop up if we tried to do that. Sure, we would have a lower greenhouse gas emission. Great. And I think studies show that like if we removed, if everyone went vegan, it was a 2.6% is what our greenhouse gas would be reduced by. 
great. Okay. We lost 2.6%, but now what? Like we have all of these major unintended consequences, which we can get into because Tara and I are pretty passionate about talking about them, but no one else is. They're just so carbon focused that they're like, we got to get rid of the carbon and how are we going to do it? And it's really easy to say, well, don't eat meat. That's how we'll do it. Okay. So if we didn't eat meat and we went all vegan and it was all plant-based, what are some of the consequences of that? So one of the biggest ones would be um, nutrient deficiencies. Obviously, I think that's we seems like a very obvious <laughs> uh, consequence and um, increased calorie intake also, which I think that we I think if you really think about it, the United States is not we do not need more calories. We need more nutrient dense foods. So that would be, you know, some of the consequences as far as from a health standpoint. And then, you know, from a food system standpoint, Agriculture, animal agriculture, grazing cattle, as Natalie, I'll let Natalie talk about that, play in a crucial role in, um, you know, the marginal lands that we're able to use. Cattle are able to use marginal lands to graze on that otherwise would go to waste. I think people think that we take cattle out of the equation and suddenly we're growing avocado trees. And like, that's not the reality. Cattle are often just grazing on grassland that it's only good for grassland. M many of the foods we eat are very water uh, uh, hogs, and in the in in the fruits and the vegetables that we grow uh, are on industrialized lands, which require uh, tractors and 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 pesticides and fertilizers. And ultimately, the land is not made for this constant uh, digging up and planting new, is it? No. So my ranch is actually a really great real life example for people to like attach to this conversation. I am in central Nebraska and I am on what uh, borders an area known as the Nebraska Sandhills. It's a very vast part of our state. It is actually the world's largest intact ecosystem still. And the reason it is that way is because we have cattle grazing on it. So if you followed along on my Instagram page, you would see us out at summer pasture. You would see these beautiful lush rolling hills, which I know is not typically associated with Nebraska, but it, it is the sand hills are, there's this beautiful, beautiful ecosystem. Um, it's lush rolling hills, it's grasslands. It's, it's so gorgeous. Um, and it is that way because we cannot do anything else with it. We cannot grow crops there. I'm sure we could plop a Walmart down there, I suppose, if we wanted to. But if we want to get into the conversation, is that really better, you know, for, from an environmental standpoint or a social standpoint? Um, not in my opinion. So the best thing we can do for that is graze cattle out there. It's good for the environment. The grasslands are they're thriving. They're beautiful. And it's good for us as a society because now we have, again, an animal that takes something that we cannot consume. We cannot take cellulose. We cannot eat grass and have it do for our bodies what an animal, you know, the, the cow does for us. So it takes that grass, it turns it into that protein, it upcycles it, and then we get to consume it. It's a beautiful, beautiful system. You know, and then on the flip side of that, like Natalie's talking about her cattle grazing, my cows were dairy. So our cows are in pens or in confinement. And a lot of what cows actually eat on our dairy is, and all dairies across the country is byproducts. Um, and I, I hate the word byproducts because it makes it sound like bad or wasteful, but really they're upcycling foods that would otherwise go to waste. And so, you know, some of the things like if you're wearing cotton shirt right now, there, when you produce cotton, there is a seed, cotton seed that is left over. And our cattle eat that as a really great source of protein. That cotton seed would otherwise go into a landfill. And, you know, you could apply that to so many things. You know, there's cattle that are eating um, almond holes in California that are, eat, you know, orange peels, all of these things that would otherwise go to waste. And some really great facts were are if those byproducts, if you composted them, which I feel like is probably like best case scenario, you would actually increase emissions by five times. 
instead of having cattle eat them. If they ended up in a landfill, you would increase emissions by 49 times. So cattle are doing us a favor by consuming these leftover products and then turning it into a nutrient-dense protein. Like- for, for thousands of years, millions of years, and just look at the, the West, uh, the Midwest, Midwest, uh, the cattle, uh, bison have been ranging, and also elk and other deer have been grazing for a long, long time. There wasn't agriculture to provide them with that. And so uh, the natural grasslands are really critical to our entire earth environment. Is that true? Yeah, preserving them is important. Like you said, uh, ruminants are what do that. So like you said, cattle are actually in the same class as bison, as deer, as elk, as goat, as sheep. They're ruminant animals. Um, and they they have so many great things about them that are intended to exist and be actually a functional part of you know the environment, the ecosystem, their hooves. Their hooves are designed to actually aerate the soil. So when they're like walking around, they're doing things to the soil. Obviously, natural fertilization is a huge thing. So when they are pooping and peeing, they're putting back you know, nutrients back into the soil that they're taking out when they're grazing. And then their grazing is obviously a really key part to it as well. I mean, they are helping control invasive species. You know, they're regulating the the grasses. They are mitigating for wildfires. I mean, there's so many things that we do not think about if we're not familiar with the animal. Um, but they do a lot of really, really important things. There's actually five principles to soil health. And the fifth principle to soil health is having an animal on the land grazing it. It's an integral part of soil health. And if we want to get into the discussion of how important soil health is or people who are like, you know, for the climate, you know, saving, the, you know, combating climate change, saving the climate. It comes down to our soil. Like that is the one thing that can actually remove carbon from the atmosphere is uh, our soils, uh, agriculture. And so that's why, again, why Tara and I advocate so strongly for um, agriculture as a whole is because we're the industry that can actually help, you know, take carbon out of the air and help improve the situation we have going on. It's the plants that make oxygen and without the plants uh, uh, thriving. Uh, question about, so back to soil health, because I live in Skinny Atlas, upstate New York, a lot of farming all over where I live. Uh, I see the, the plowing, the, the turning things over, but I also see times when they leave the different fields with, with the other uh, growth on them one year and don't use that. Uh, but ultimately, I was, I was watching a, a YouTube video on erosion and rivers and and runoff and and ultimately uh, uh, standard farming is is causes a lot of erosion of our lands and and uh, how is that affected uh, your ranching I guess for one or your uh, your uh, dairy farm or just in general our environment do you think the erosion that we're seeing to our our land is really critical in the soil health. Yeah. I mean, I think this is one of the things about, um, farming that we're seeing more and more cover crops. It's kind of what you mentioned where we're leaving, um, we're either planting a crop that is called a cover crop, or we're leaving old residue from a previous crop on the soil in order to help with erosion. Um, you know, here in Eastern New Mexico, our big erosion is wind. I mean, we don't get a lot of rain, we don't have rivers. So our erosion is a little bit different than what maybe people think about with water erosion. Um, but definitely keeping that topsoil. I mean, we, I, there's like a quote that I love. that's like, we owe our entire existence to the top six inches of soil. Like, yeah, we have to protect our soils in order to be able to continue to provide food. 
And not to point the finger outwards in this conversation, because I, I really hate doing that. Before we hopped on the call, we talked about kind of how there's a disconnect between, you know, our food and the consuming our food and how it's produced, right? There's definitely a, a, a gap in the bridge there. And I said to no fault of anyone. So I don't like, I don't blame anyone for not understanding, you know, food practices or questioning it because you're removed from it. Like I would have a lot of questions about the oil industry. You know, I don't think about electricity. Like I don't, when I flip on my light switch, I don't know exactly what went in to get it to do that. You know, so when you're removed from those industries, you just don't understand. But when it comes to like top, you know, soil conservation and some of these, you know, regenerative things, I do think they're just starting to come into dialogue and discussion more with consumers than they are with producers. Like this isn't new to us. You know, these conversations about retaining our topsoil, about the importance of, you know, combating water erosion and wind erosion and all these things. Farmers and ranchers, we've been having these conversations for decades now, right? I mean, there are people, the ranch I grew up on is, you know, was homesteaded in the late 1800s. My wow. family, I'm a, you know, a fourth generation. And so to pass that on from generation to generation, we had to recognize, okay, how can we stay in the exact same spot? Like my, we don't, you don't pick up a ranch or a farm and move it. Right. So you had to have a conversation that said, how can we stay in this exact same spot and continue to do a practice that does take from the land? Right. Like that's what ranching and farming is. We take to the land, but how do we get back to it in the same breath? Right. And that is what we've been doing as producers for Ever because we are in the same spots and we are doing the same thing over and over again. And so we have been talking about this for a really long time. Like, how can we give back to our soils? What can we be doing better to, you know, um, make our um, outputs, you know, um, not as intensive? Like this sustainability conversation isn't new to agriculture. I feel like it's just kind of new to consumers. And now with the COVID crisis, we've actually brought a, a new way of sharing and communicating because I really wasn't doing as much blogging until COVID and doing so much online and meeting so many amazing people uh, through this uh, modality of, of conversation. So ultimately you're right. We don't, we take for granted so much and quite often we latch on to complaints rather than the, the gratitude for everything in some way. And and there's good or bad to everything. And we sort of all have to get together and work a way to make it sustainable mm -hmm. in a conversation that helps everyone find a healthier way of living. Yeah. And I think what you said out of there really stands out to me that you're like, there's good and bad to everything. And that's what Tara and I really, when we have these nuanced conversations, whether it's coming on people's podcasts like yours or our podcast of our own, we really try and get into that nuanced conversation that is the pros and cons. Because, you know, going back to what I said at the very beginning, we have a very safe, affordable, abundant food system. There's a lot of pros to that, right? Like we could get into, do you like DoorDash? Okay. Well, that may change if you want to revert, you know, our growing practices, um, to, to different than what it is now. Let's say you don't like conventional agriculture. Okay. Well, as a consumer, you're going to have changes to that convenience, maybe one prices, maybe one, you know, there's different things. And so these conversations aren't so easy where it's like, you know, as you kind of said, let's focus on the bad and um, really hone in on that, which is good. We need to progress as a society and we need to be doing things to better. Um, but it's like having the conversation afterward of what does that mean? Okay. We make this change that you don't like anymore, but here's what it means. You know, are we as a society equipped to handle that change? If so, great. Okay. Then maybe we can look as a, a nation changing an entire, you know, industry's practices, but it's like, we need to have more conversations about what that actually means. I think sometimes we ask for something without fully understanding what it really would change for us. 
the important part is that we have a conversation about how to make it all better. Mm -hmm. And it usually doesn't mean throwing out all plant-based foods or all animal-based foods and, 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 and or organic and all inorganic. It's working on ways that we all uh, come together and continue to make uh, healthy, sustainable, um, uh, safe, and, um, and affordable food for everyone. Yeah, I feel like it really takes all types of agriculture to make our food system. Like you can't remove one piece. Like I'm talking about all of, you know, the byproducts that cattle eat. Like if you took out, you know, almond producers uh, or almond growers, then, you know, you're going to create a deficit there of something that, you know, that it's going to have consequences. And so it really is all of it working together to be able to have this system that we we have in place. And I mean, as we've been talking about, like there's definitely room for improvement. We I've, I've said like a lot of ag has set some really hefty goals for making improvements on um, tackling, you know, whether it's emissions or soil health or all of these things. But I think instead of just like blaming one or removing one, it's about the greater system working together. Natalie, maybe you can tell us a little bit about your ranch and what your uh, main um, uh, focus is and what products you provide. And then I'm going to say, add the same question to uh, Tara. Yep. So we run a lot of cattle. We are very cattle intensive. So we do little farming. We do have some farm ground, but we actually lease it out to like a local farmer in the area and let him farm it. Um, so our cattle are going to enter the conventional food supply. So eventually they do get, you know, bought by a feedlot who then will finish it. And then that gets, you know, obviously said packer and then it goes to grocery stores or restaurants. Um, in that same breath, I say that because people will watch my Instagram stories and say, how do we support a rancher like you? How do we know that all of our beef is coming? You know, I would feel good about eating beef if I knew it was raised by someone like you. Um, and that is a majority, I guess, of U.S. beef producers. I mean, we are, I think there's over 700,000 families in the U.S. that are providing beef. Um, the average herd size is 43 is all. So it's very, very small. It's a lot smaller than people will think. Um, and our ranch is actually bigger than that. You know, we are in the multiple hundreds of cows. And so we're quite substantially larger than the average herd size. And in the same breath, it's just me, my husband, and an employee. So we, um, yeah, we're just, we ranch every single day. We're out at um, pasture. Um, we also graze corn stalks. That's what you'd see in the winter if you followed along with us. And then um, it's just kind of a cycle from there. And how do people find you on your, following your uh, story? Oh, sure. It's just my name. It's Natalie Kavoric. So that would be my um, personal Instagram page. And can people buy a, a half a cow, a quarter cow directly from you? Uh, if you lived in my little town, you could, <laughs> but I, I have, I actually, that's how I actually got started sharing online was a direct to consumer beef business. Um, so anyone who's listening, who supports a direct to consumer, direct to consumer beef business, thank you very much for doing that because it is a very, um, it's not an easy thing to do as a rancher. I think a lot of people just think, well, why doesn't every rancher just, you know, sell their own beef directly to the, to the marketplace or to the consumer. Um, and it's not that easy to do. There was a lot of my, me and my husband encountered a lot of struggles. There was a lot of barriers and hurdles to it. And so I ultimately ended up kind of stepping away from, you know, selling direct to consumer. Um, but so yeah, ours just enters the conventional supply chain. And is there the, so you sell your, your, uh, grass, graze free range cattle to a someone that's going to fatten them up in the short term and then sell them on the market tell us about the good and the bad of that and i mean I, that's my preference of meat by the way 
I, yeah, I love I, the grain finish personally. I'm actually glad you brought this up because this is another area that I don't think people um, are fully aware of. And I also think it gets twisted a lot like marketing. So no matter whether you eat grass finished or grain finished beef, the first two thirds of their life looks exactly the same. And it would be like a ranch like ours. It's called a cow calf operation is what it's called in agriculture. And it is when you are raising, you know, the mama and the baby together. So our cattle, well, all cattle, again, will stay together. The mom and the baby, they aren't weaned until quite later in life. And so for two thirds of life, again, whether it's grain finished or grass finished, you're going to have a cow out on pasture grazing. Uh, the, the next step in the beef process then is when, if you're going the grain finished route is when a feedlot would buy it from a family like mine. So the interesting thing about, sorry, these conversations are so nuanced. I feel like I'm hopping around, but no, the interesting good. thing it's about good. the beef industry is we're not, um, vertically integrated at all. So if you were talking like pork or chicken, it's actually owned oftentimes by the same company from beginning to end. So like a Tyson would own chicken from beginning to end in the beef industry, it changes ownerships about four different times. And it's usually family to family to family. Obviously when you hit the Packer stage, that is, <laughs> well, I guess maybe still kind of a family, but it is definitely a little bit different. I'm okay with people calling, you know, the, the Packer part of the beef, um, chain industrialized, but I'm not okay with them calling anything before that. Cause it's really just families like mine changing ownership of the animal. So once my husband and I get done raising it out on pasture, then the feedlot would buy it and they finish it with the grain. And another common misconception is that that's all the cattle's eating is just corn. Like it's just out there, like eating a corn, a cob or something. <laughs> and that's not true. It's getting, it's usually a well-balanced diet that's created from a nutritionist. So that's actually a job. Someone's job is to create a well-balanced diet for an animal. Um, we actually have them here on our ranch because we do backgrounding, which is, I won't get into it, but, um, so the animal, if it's grain finished, it gets, you know, a plethora of things, part of which is corn. Like you said, they were trying to fatten them up quicker. Um, and then it would enter the packing phase. If you are grass finished, then it's not going to have those other things added to its diet. It's going to stay on a, a complete, um, grass forage diet. But I'll say one last thing. Another common missing thing is that grass finished, they think was out on grass its entire life. You can have a grass finished animal that is still in confinement. It, it really comes down to just what was put in their body. Do you think there's a difference in the value of the nutrition from that animal? No, right now studies show again, science, science shows that there's not a nutritional difference between grass finished beef and grain finished beef. Um, you can get into minute differences. Um, one of the ones people like to bring up is the omega conversation, which there is a difference, but if you're looking at trying to get healthy omegas in your body, I wouldn't be looking at eating meat anyway. I'd be looking at something else that provides, you know, adequate amounts of omega like fish or something. So if you are choosing, you know, I, I hate to tell people what to choose because, again, Tara and I stand for food choice. But I really believe if you are only seeking out grass-fed beef because you think it is, you know, going to give you more nutrition, it's just not true. You can get it's the same across the board whether you're going from grain-finished animal or uh, grass-finished animal. Yeah, and I'm not sure we've proven that omega three versus omega six is uh, is is the thing that causes us to be healthy or not. I think it's more the toxins we get from the wrong foods that are the cause of disease. And we sort of focus on cholesterol, omega-3, omega-6s, and, and we're, we're missing the point there. So Tara, tell us a little bit about your, your, your uh, uh, dairy farm and, and exactly how you share the health and wellness of what you do. Yeah. So kind of similar to Natalie, uh, 
but different at the same time. So dairy, there's about 37,000 dairy farm families across the country. Over 95% of all dairies are family owned and operated in the United States. Um, dairies like size, you know, there's bigger, there's smaller kind of as Natalie mentioned, but they are majority family owned and operated. And, um, again, similar to Natalie, we are conventional dairy farm. Uh, so our, milk goes actually while we were having this conversation, the milk truck just left a few minutes ago from our dairy, um, that our milk just enters the conventional food supply system. And, but ours actually goes to cheese. We have a really large cheese plant in our town. And so the majority of our milk all goes to cheese. Uh, we're out in rural New Mexico, so not a very, uh, populated area. So it doesn't really make sense for us to sell fluid milk because that is obviously a heavy and expensive product to transport. Whereas cheese, it makes a lot more sense for where we're located. Um, a fun fact about, uh, milk that I love to share with people though, if you buy just the plain old conventional milk on the shelf at your grocery store, chances are it came from a farm less than a hundred miles away from that grocery store. Mm. And it probably left the farm less than 48 hours before then. So wow. it is a very quick process um, of how we're getting that product out. I mean, obviously, it's a perishable liquid item. So you're moving it really quickly. But um, it kind of has a cool story there. And we, I, again, not similar to Natalie, people always ask, you know, how can we get, you know, your milk? How can we? And I'm like, I think most of my cheese actually goes to like Walmart brand cheese. <laughs> and so it makes me laugh because I think people think like, you know, that it's, you know, if you buy the store brand, it's not as good a quality. And I always tell people I would put my milk up against anyone in the country we have really great milk quality. And like the brand does not matter. Conventional like versus organic does not matter. Like, I mean, it, there's differences we've, we talked about, but it is a nutrient dense product. So some fun facts about dairy. It, and it, on your dairy, how many cows do you have? So the dairy that I'm on today, that's literally in my backyard, uh, we are milking 1800 cows. So it is a big dairy. Um, I know that number always, I feel like throws people, uh, New Mexico is kind of unique though, just because of our climate and our geography, we actually have the largest average herd size in the country and it's about 3000 cows per herd. And so this dairy that I'm on is actually a little bit smaller than our average. I grew up in Southern California and I remember as a kid, we used to go to the to the to farmer farmer to the dairy, and and we get to fresh milk and 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 things like that. And but I'm I'm seeing a lot of uh, dairy farms uh, are being pushed out of the larger metropolitan areas because of the cost of land. Yeah, it was funny because Natalie mentioned how long her family has been homesteading in Montana. And you can't just up and like move a ranch or a farm. But actually, that's happened to a lot of dairies. One of the things about dairies, as I mentioned, you want to be close to the people consuming dairy because of, you know, it being a liquid product. And so my family actually dairy farmed in Southern California. My mom jokes that she rode a horse down Main Street in Marietta. If you've been to Marietta now, <laughs> you are not riding a horse down Main Street. It is a massive city. And so it pushed out, obviously, a lot of the dairies. And that's how we ended up in New Mexico is because, if, you know, urban sprawl that we there was not an option for us to dairy there anymore. And it just didn't make sense financially because of the cost of land and the other things that you mentioned. You know, you have to have, you know, feed, obviously, to feed your cattle. And, um, you know, farmers were selling out, um, my husband's family dairy is his old family dairy in California is literally like track homes. Now yeah. it, 
Yeah. I mean, it's crazy to see when you go. I mean, he he's like, I just can't believe how different it is than when he was a child. Uh, and so, yeah, that's exactly why we ended up out in New Mexico is because of those those land issues in California. So cheese lasts. Beef actually lasts pretty good because it's all uh, frozen. And I mean, I buy so much of my meat frozen. Yeah. Uh, that it it really and and we have to really honor our food system in America. It's probably one of the best in the world. Yep. And yeah, it, I'm always really proud of, um, and I think even, I mean, obviously COVID showed that we like have a pretty fragile food system, but we also didn't, I mean, we still fed people during COVID, right? Like there were some hiccups and things, but we didn't have, you know, starvation. We didn't have mass food. I mean, we could have had major, major problems. If you yep. think about how delicate, delicate of a food system we have, and we still managed to feed people three times a day for that long through that big of a crisis, which is the first time we've ever been put in something like that in society. So I'm always really proud to be like a U.S. farmer and rancher because I, I feel really proud of the products that we're raising. So on, I imagine ranching isn't as, as um, worker, uh, you don't need as many people doing the work, the cattle are grazing, but on the dairy farm, how many people do you have uh, doing the work there? Yeah, that is a definitely a big difference between dairy and um, like a cattle ranch. So typically the like the average is you need one person per 100 cows. Mm -hmm. That seems to be like no matter across the board what size you are, it's just kind of like this that's what works out. Um, and so, yeah, so we have employees. Um, I'm about a hundred steps from my milking barn. I can like, my husband always jokes, he can hear the, the milk pump turn on from our backyard. <laughs> uh, and so it's, it is a really interesting way of life living on a dairy. Dairy is, uh, there's a lot going on. Like there's trucks in and out. There's just a lot of activity on dairies. Um, and it, it makes their a pretty ex exciting backyard, I guess. So encouraging anyone at any age, but certainly young people looking for careers in, in food production in one way or another, what are we doing to help encourage that? Because, you know, everyone wants to sit behind a computer, which is kind of bad. Yeah, that's a really good question. I feel like there is like a misconception too, that if you want to be involved in ag, it means like you have to be involved in ag like the way Natalie or I are. But there is so many ways to get involved in agriculture and careers in agriculture. I mean, my job title is environmental consultant, like not necessarily a dairy farmer. Um, and there's so much technology in agriculture that it, I think when people really get into it, it really blows their mind. And so I do hope that we do a better job of attracting more people into ag, um, especially in the technology space. I feel like if you're really good at, in technology, you might be more inclined to go work for a big tech company instead of a big ag tech company. Um, but there's some really exciting things happening in agriculture. I personally am very excited about the next five to 10 years in our food supply system and, and just changes that are happening and propelling us forward. Uh, and so it's like kind of thinking outside the box. There's so many different allied industries that support agriculture for ways for people to be involved in ag without necessarily like owning a farm. Encouraging uh, people to uh, experience it because since our food production isn't in our backyard as it is in your backyard. That's one of the, the issues. My, my actually, my, my parents uh, lived in Tulare, California. Uh, and I lived in, in uh, Davis, California, where ag, it was just ag everywhere. 
but it, but it is, I mean, one is we all need food. We love to go out to eat. We love to go shopping and buying food. We love cooking food. But part of the encouragement is how to get people to, to get out there and experience because there's not just one job, there are infinite jobs. And, you know, I always say, you know, food is the foundation of our cultures, whatever, no matter what your culture is, is food is it. Are, are you, so do you guys both sort of focus on just sort of the, the omnivore life rather than keto, carnivore or herbivore? Yeah, my husband's experiment, he's dabbling with trying to do keto right now. <laughs> but I am definitely just a proponent for like, a, I guess, a well-balanced whole food omnivore diet. Yeah, I would say we both are big advocates for whole food. That's yeah. our big, I don't know, big takeaway for us in foods is like getting foods as close to the source of how they they were produced or grown or raised uh, is how we approach our, our meals. One of my favorite things is like a really good salad, but I would never eat it without like a steak on it. You know, like my favorite thing is a steak salad. So I don't know. I think I'm just like a balanced girl in that way. <laughs> I, I, that used to be my diet. And I, I went from uh, keto to carnivore after a paleo keto to carnivore. And I, I know I think there's a, but as an omnivore, if you focus on the fatty meat, if you really get the fatty, high quality meat that you that that you have, and and the milk products, I mean, I'm cream, butter, and cheese. Mm -hmm. uh, and then then one other thing to talk about we haven't talked about yet is eggs, and 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 chickens. Uh, have you guys uh, where 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 do you sit on on the eggs that we're consuming, and um, and where 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 do we get it? Where's the produ production the best? Yeah. So I feel like I'm a pretty big egg eater, but I know I speak for Natalie and I, when I say we are just not big chicken households <laughs> and it's probably just because as Natalie said, like I have a freezer full of beef too. Um, we ultimately beef one of our dairy cows for our freezer. Um, and obviously all dairy cow change career paths after a certain point and become uh, beef cows. Um, but I feel like I, it's very rare for me to go to the grocery store and pick up chicken knowing that there's a steak in my freezer. <laughs> Well, I've always yeah. thought that. Oh, go ahead, Natalie. Oh, go ahead. Well, I, that that ultimately, there's a reason that beef cattle are sort of our number one meat that we go to. I mean, it's it really is. Um, it, they're free range essentially. That's the very best. They've been around doing that forever. Chickens, you know, most of it is 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 industrial. Now, not that it's bad, but but um, I think that it seems like meat is really the strength of, of our food. And it's simply the thing that everything is, is centered around. Yeah. Being in agriculture, I always, I don't like to like point the other finger at other sectors within the industry, but if I did have to give an award, I would probably give it <laughs> to myself, the beef rancher. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, they, I just do think it's important that people realize that they are, I mean, I alluded to this earlier when I said that they are, you know, vertically integrated. So chicken and pigs are raised a little bit differently than, you know, cattle are like we, like, as you mentioned, were, or as I mentioned, we're out at pasture two thirds of their life and then they enter, you know, a feedlot maybe, and then they get packaged. But, um, I have never personally toured a, you know, pig facility or a chicken facility. So I'm not like an expert on it and I can't point out, and I'm obviously not raising them. Uh, there are pros and cons, you know, chicken farmer probably say, well, we use less land than cows do, you know? So, I mean, you could get into some pretty back and forth nuanced conversations about things, but there are major differences. Chicken is also like a monograstic animal. So, you know, there is people who worry about like 
you know, people who say, well, corn finished beef, isn't good. You can't put, you can't give a cow corn. It's going to be an unhealthy animal. And then you're eating unhealthy meat and like that whole narrative. Um, I don't, that doesn't play a role for me with beef. You know, they're, they have four stomachs. That's why they're ruminant. You know, they have a completely different thing going on with their anatomy and physiology than they do than a chicken, which is a monogastric animal. So they're just chicken. I'm always really surprised actually, when people say that they don't, if they're not eating a ton of meat, but they're like chicken is their go-to choice or something. I'm like, really like beef. Like if I had to pick any animal protein to, to consume, like I would hands down be picking, you know, the hamburger, the, the roast and the steak and like everything that comes from the beef cow before I would the other, but I'm obviously very, very biased. <laughs> well, we're all bringing our biases, but that's a whole part of the human conversation. No matter your politics, your religion, your food belief systems. I mean, we have to have a conversation in order to understand and learn what others are living and how we can all learn from them. Otherwise we'd all continue to be fighting and that's not where we want to be. Is, is, um, uh, let's see the, the, Milk and and uh, cattle, uh, hormones and antibiotics and vaccines. You care to comment about any of those things and whether or not we should all worry about them? They're really a thing, uh, or 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 what? I'll, I'll start with the dairy side um, for milk. Um, there is no added hormones to milk. There is naturally occurring hormones in every single food even plants. Actually, they have a lot of them. Uh, and the antibiotics conversation is always interesting in the dairy world. Every single tanker of milk before it leaves my farm is tested for antibiotics. And if it were to come back and I'm talking to the parts per trillion, like as good as science gets, every single tanker is tested. If it were to come back with antibiotics, we have to pay for that tanker as the dairy farmer and the milk gets dumped. If it happens like more than once. If it were to happen like a couple of times, like you would get to the point where people would not pick up your milk. Like they, they're not going to want it because you're going to have to end up dumping it. And so there's a tons of checks and balances to make sure that there is no antibiotics in anything, um, all the way from the cow. So if a cow is treated with antibiotics, it's treated by a vet. We have a veterinarian that comes out once a week and those cows are actually milked separately there. We call them our hospital string and they are milked completely separately and their milk never enters or touches any of the food supply, like milk that ultimately enters the food system. Uh, milk is tested again at the plant. There's randomized sampling at the grocery store. I mean, the amount of times milk gets tested is honestly like crazy. And then as far as, you know, I know a lot of people always have questions about RBST because people see that label on milk. There's actually no fluid milk on the shelf that contains uh, milk from cows treated with RBST. It's like not, it's like a non-issue at this point. Nobody is using that product for fluid milk. And, um, but you know, people see that label. And so they, it brings up a lot of questions. Can you just to spell out our RBST for those that may not know it? Oh, what it is. Uh, I, oh my goodness. Now you're putting me on the spot. Bovine. Aren't you a dairy farmer? Oh, I'm like, I, wait, what is it? I don't even know what it is now. I'm but, so but used it, to just saying RBSD. Is it, is it's not, it's not an antibiotic. It's, no, it's it, not it, an it's, antibiotic. It's a, it's a, it's a vaccine strain. No, it was, um, so it was something that came out, I think in the eighties is when it was originally introduced and it was, um, a hormone that we would give cows. It was a naturally occurring hormone that we would give cows to help stimulate milk production. Oh. And it was very obvious right away that consumers did not like it. Like it was not. And so 
I know I've talked to my dad about it and he's like, I think I used it for like one year and was like, I, he personally just didn't even like it. And so that's a very common thing with a lot of dairy farmers. So most dairy farmers haven't used it in decades. A bovine somatotropin, which are Thank gonadotropins you. that we may use in order to help stimulate ovulation and fertility. So, um, but, but there, there's all these things. It's like organic versus inorganic or uh, grass fed or grain fed. Uh, antibiotic uh, or 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 non-antibiotic. These are things that we all worry about, but they're probably the one percent issue. Would you agree? Yeah. If anyone, I mean, if for everyone listening, if there's anything you can take from this conversation, I hope it's that you could just take that you can like go to the grocery store and buy your food and know that you are getting you know a nutritious, safe product that was raised by families in agriculture. Like that is the bottom line of what's going on. Yes. There's like more nuanced conversation with all of that, but I want people to feel really safe about going to the grocery store and buying their food. So whether you're getting it from your local rancher farmer or your local supermarket, the foods in America are, are safe uh, and really providing good, nutritious, wholesome uh, uh, milk products and meat products. Cause that's what we're talking about today. Yeah, yeah absolutely. absolutely. I mean, Walmart, Costco, Price Chopper, all of these places compared to, to Whole Foods or, or, or Wegmans, the, the meat quality, the milk quality, the cheese quality, the butter quality, and those private labels of all those stores are healthy, nutritious, and safe foods. Yeah, I mean, we actually know our one of our fr- good friends' family raises the grapes for Walmart. You know, it's like I think when you are one of my favorite sayings is the further you are from your food system, the more fear and questions you have about it. It's like just because big big is not bad in agriculture, and I think as a society we really think that like the bigger, the more scary it is. Obviously, it's the worst. There's you know they're trying to do all these terrible things. It's a big farm corporation. It's big ag. It's all these terrible things, and that's not necessarily true. Big is not bad, and small is not better. If people wanted to visit you online or can they come to your ranch ranches and, and uh, dairy farms to, to see what you're doing at any time? Um, I would recommend following us online. <laughs> How can they do that? Both of us are pretty far out there. Uh, so I don't know that we're going to have a lot of, a lot of takers wanting to come all the way out to where <laughs> we are. Um, but you can follow me online. My name too, Tara Vanderdusen, um, is where you can find me on Instagram. Um, my husband also shares on Facebook, um, and he's, uh, the milkman and milkmaid, or we both share over there. So you can find us on Facebook, but I think the best place to find both Natalie and I is on our podcast page. Um, discover ag podcast and then on instagram at discover ag underscore yeah like tara said if you're listening to this you're probably a podcast person so um and if you like to hear more conversations around your food that's what our podcast is so we actually take the top three trending trending topics or you know ag and food news that week and we give our perspective you know as a rancher and a dairy farmer so we covered like if you saw the headlines about the big dairy fire and you wanted to know more information about that we covered that if you want to know about like bill gates you know, buying farmland. We talk about that. I think this week we're talking about um, the APL, the labeling that people are talking about putting on the fruit. You know, we're deep diving that and giving our two cents on that. We're talking about, um, Tara, what are we talking about? We're talking about Saudi Arabia buying mm-hmm. or having alfalfa and shipping alfalfa back to Saudi Arabia. They are growing alfalfa in Arizona and then shipping it back to Saudi Arabia. So lots of just news that it, we get sent a lot of things like people will be seeing this, you know, 
we'll see the same article being sent to us over and over again. And it's usually a pretty good indicator to cover it because people are having questions about it. And so, yeah, whatever's trending in the food and ag space, we, we cover it. Our ranchers and farmers are feeding the world along with our communities. Yeah. I mean, I think people like to say that's like a slogan or something, but like we live in a global market. There's absolutely exportation, importation, and what we're producing here in the U S absolutely is being exported um, and helping contribute to like food security elsewhere. Yes. Which is a big, a big important thing to do. Do you think the war on, on, and meat and dairy, because I think in some ways it's all, all about some uh, animal-based products. Uh, what's the best way that we can all sort of think about this, look at it, listen to it, and, and maybe respond to it? Oh, that's such a good question. Uh, I think that anytime you see some kind of headline, like take it a layer deeper. It, you know, I think it's so easy for news outlets and media and, and anyone to just put together a headline that's like, you know, cattle are killing the planet or whatever, like a really quick soundbite. And it, it catches people's attention. It sticks in their mind. Um, but when reality, like, it, there's so much more to that conversation just than just that. So like dive a layer deeper and like find out a little bit more about, you know, what goes into raising cattle, how they're produced, all of those kind of things. We forget about faith. We're human beings and, and faith is so important for us in our lives. We often focus on the worry and the negatives rather than seeing the amazing beauty and the positives of, of all that we have. With everything comes some hardships and challenges, but that's just part of the gift that God has given all of us. That's kind of how I like to see it uh, every every single day and how we, can we each sort of um, give more information about who we are and what we do and answer questions about the things that people are worried about. Um, and I, I think the podcasting and the blogging is just such a fun, interesting thing. I learned so much on, on all of this. Are there any things that you uh, wanted to share that maybe I didn't ask or you think is really important? No, I think this has been such a good conversation and we're just really appreciative, um, you know, to be able to connect with your community as a farmer and a rancher. Not often do people get to speak directly with a farmer and a rancher. So thank you for having us on so that we can do that. Well, yeah, we're going to link. You. We're going to link uh, your your uh, podcasts and, and your 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 blogging and and certainly that people can learn much more about it because it's important uh, for all of us that that uh, uh, take it for granted that our our refrigerators or freezers or we can hit DoorDash and someone will deliver uh, something <laughs> that that someone ultimately has put a lot of work in for for all of us. But uh, I want if to you thank. I was going to say, if you couldn't believe it, I'm so rural. I've never actually ordered DoorDash in my life. <laughs> well, I don't know if I, I ever will be able to either. <laughs> you know, I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm blessed. I mean, I can order my food from my market. They deliver you know, all of my foods and we have local ranchers and, and farmers. And, you know, again, uh, it, we're very blessed. And, you know, one, one other thing is for those people that live in the big cities, there are, there are farmer markets. That, that really provide a lot of great, fresh, and people travel to those farmers markets, the ranchers and the farmers, to provide the cheeses, the, the, the milks and, and the meat and, and, the, and the plants that for those that are plant eaters are incorporated in their, in their diet. So there's so much available for, for everyone out there. Yeah, I think yep. if you really want to get to know your farmer, your rancher, like that's an important piece for you. Things like farmer's market, drawing, buying direct from um, the rancher, your beef, like kind of like Natalie mentioned earlier, is such a great step for you to just connect a little bit more with those people. 
Well, I want to thank both of you for being here today. I really appreciate it. I've learned a lot and we'll keep on following and learning more and sharing with our community because our communities are very blessed and lucky to have both of you that are providing great, great food for, for all of us. So thank you. Well, thank, thank you. you. We appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Carnivore Conversations hosted by me, Dr. Robert Kiltz. And don't forget to review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening today. Check out drkiltz.com for more and subscribe to our Instagram, YouTube, TikTok, and Facebook for more inspiring content every day. Take care and see you next time.